Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. Um, Angelo Gingerelli. You know, my friends, I spot them early, and then they start exploding, and they start, like, putting out all this context, all, all this content. So, uh, Angelo Gingerelli wrote a book called Stand Up and Laugh. It was a mixed-media podcast audiobook book, Stand Up and Laugh, Angelo Gingerelli. I was featured on one of these, uh, the podcast version, and uh, it was edited down, um, so I'm going to play that, but I also want to plug Stuck in the Middle. Angelo Gingerelli um, is having a release party uh, for his new album, Stuck in the Middle, and it's happening at uh, 723 Cookman Avenue, um, and at at House of the Independence, and that is in Asbury Park. So 723 Cookman Avenue, Asbury, Asbury Park, New Jersey, is when Angelo Gingerelli will release his album, Stuck in the Middle. That's March 31st, 2023. Oh, it already happened. Um, Stuck in the Middle, Angelo Gingerelli. He also put a book out called <laughs> Stand Up and Laugh. Uh, and it also has a podcast associated with it, with the audiobook version. Look, when, when my po- friends explode, I get out of the way. I let you know what's going on. Uh, Angelo Gingerelli and I have been friends uh, since about 20, hmm, 2019. So four years now. What a pleasure this guy is. What a great guy this guy is. Um, so I'm going to play... The segment that he allowed me to be a part of this incredible project, and then afterward, because uh, I got some emails about this, I'm going to play replay an old episode of Highway Diary where I take uh, Richard Dweck to the strip club. Enjoy Highway Diary episode 377 with Angelo Gingerelli and Richard Dweck. The only plug I have is ericcollarbach.com. Love you all very much. Enjoy the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed that segment of Stand Up and Laugh, available now from Microcosm Publishing and microcosmpublishing.com. Now, for the second part of this episode, we're going to catch up with a stand-up comic that I met at the Jersey Shore a couple of years ago, but his experience and his resume is much different than most of my other comedy friends at the Jersey Shore. Most comedy people, you'll find out, they grew up somewhere and have experience in that scene, and then if they're lucky and talented enough, they take those talents to either New York or L.A. or another quote-unquote comedy city and try to take their game to the next level. This man has experience in four very distinct comedy scenes all over the country, which I think is very rare. And we're talking about what that was like, how these scenes were the same, how they're different, how they could be improved, and what he kind of brought to and what he got out of the four scenes he was a part of. He's also host of the very entertaining The Highway Diary podcast, which goes to 300 episodes deep, and it's been airing for seven or eight years at this point. He's had me on twice, and I like to think I'm one of his better interviews, but I'm not totally sure because he's had some great guests on The Highway Diary podcast. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Eric Hollerback. Eric, how you doing, man? Thanks, Angelo Gentarelli. Nice, man. Yeah, I think I'm key. maybe I did intro a little formal because obviously we are friends and have worked together a bunch of times over the last year or so. But that being said, can you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of your comedy bio? I, where are you from? How do you get in, in the game? And then yours is interesting because you moved around so many times. So give us maybe years, dates, places, where you were, when you were doing, what you were doing, how it all worked out to get you here tonight. Yeah, I'm just a 
grifter, man. I'm just a vagabond. So, um, yeah, I'm from a little town called Long Valley, New Jersey. Um, when I was 16, I, I literally phoned the comedy cellar and they uh, had an open mic night. But I had been there three or four times with my father, maybe illegally, in 2002. Um, he took me in when I was 16 and, uh, you know, I saw the greats of the greats at the cellar, Dave Tell, Jim Norton, Mitch Hedberg, Patrice O'Neill. Uh, seriously, when I'm 15, 16. And so, um, it, I mean, it blew my mind how funny they were. I mean, you would, your sides would be hurting laughing so hard, you know? And, yeah. um, mm -hmm. so no, then, Real quick, I think where we live in New Jersey, you have a unique thing that even though we're not in a major city, you have such easy access to New York, you could go and see like five headliners in a night. Was that something if you just live in like Iowa, that's not something you can ever do. So how, how valuable is that experience to you and seeing those guys super young and realizing you want to be a part of that? It formed me forever because then when I went to other scenes, um, I was not impressed by you know, locals who were not talented and trying to douche me. So just seeing Dave Attell and Jim Norton and fucking Greg Giraldo and all these people, um, I mean, if they're the funniest people possible. Like, you can't get funnier than Jim Norton and Dave Attell in 2003 or David Attell today, you know? You can't get funnier than that. So when you're exposed at 15 years old to the best comics, the best who, you know, um, it really just sort of set, I think the the level in my head of, of like that. No, you have to 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 even enter. You have to be this good. So it just calibrated my expectations to the top, and I think that was key for me to go on the journey with the stamina I've gone on, um, just knowing exactly where this goes. But just, so then I did, um, I put a bunch of my friends in my mom's minivan maybe 12 times. And cause that was what I had to do to perform at the comedy cellar. Um, so like I, I did bringer shows at the cellar, you know, 12 times uh, when I was 16 to 17 years old. Um, in 2002, 2003, then in 2003, the summer between my junior, senior year, I saw a show at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And I was a big fan of Whose Line Is It Anyway on Comedy Central. So then when at the end of the show at UCB, they said, we teach classes, I signed up for those classes immediately. I started traveling once a week to the Upright Citizens Brigade to start training improv with them. And I had teachers like Chris Gethard and Jackie Clark and Doug Moe and Billy Merritt and, I, and just like the, but it was a different thing. It was improv, but I could show up and train it like an Olympic athlete is training for, you know, a ski luge or something. It, we took it real serious. Then I went to the, uh, I went to the new school university uh, for undergrad, I graduated in 2008, and a week before I graduated there, I was performing with the UCB. But I mean, those classes were so hard. I would let, I had Chris Gethard, he was so tough. I would go home crying, literally crying, going, I suck, I'm not funny. I'm never gonna be as funny as Chris Gethard, you know? 
Um, yeah, but Chris, Chris, Chris Gethard's great, man. I think if you're a person from New Jersey, he's definitely someone you should look up to. He's really taking his game to the next level in every way possible. One thing, you made a great analogy with those UCB classes were like training for an Olympic competition, right? And yeah. in the book, I make the, the, the reference a bunch of times to comparing comedy to basketball. I think if you want to be the best basketball player, you got to go to the playground with the best players and play against them day after day after day, right? You did something interesting for a Jersey guy in that you went to not just the best playground in New Jersey, you went to one of the best playgrounds in the world by starting at the Comedy Cellar, right? What was that experience like? And what would you tell a young comic about bringer shows? Is that something they should do? They should not do? What was your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, you start sort of learn about it. Like, you know, I would have to like rake leaves or mow the lawn and, uh, you know, I would put, you know, 60 bucks on the table and have my friends pay for the rest. You know, we're all broke in high school, sophomores and juniors in high school. Um, so, I mean, as annoying as it was, it was sort of um, a journey for us all to go at that age to New York City over and over again. Um, but, yeah, it's nice to have friends that support you. Um, but, yeah, uh, being as young as I was and. And, and like I, because my same friends went every time, um, I wouldn't do the same jokes twice. And the first time I went there, I was literally the best open micer because I practiced so hard. I would, you know, the second time, I mean, I couldn't have bombed more. I, I literally could not have bombed. I could not have been worse scientifically. Right. And then um, I did it again and again and again. And my, I was just so all over the place, my results. Oh, and then I even took a class, a stand-up class before the Upright Citizens Brigade um, at, at a Gotham Comedy Club. It was taught by Dan Vitale. Um, so I did that before. I was, you know, literally still in high school and I would go at night to the Gotham. And then that summer of 2003, I went to take classes at, UCB. I mean, so it's just my desire was just off the charts from from that age. You know, that's that's awesome, man. I really I didn't know that about your background. I didn't realize you had done improv and stuff like that. There's a chapter in a book where I talk about comedians and improv groups have uh, a almost adversarial relationship, right? And I think a lot of comics look down on improv people. And I, number one, I don't think that's fair. Number two, I think we're talking about building a scene. We should be working together because to keep it real, I've had great sets and great shows opening for improv shows and had a blast with those guys and girls. Right. Yeah. What, what did you learn in improv that you took to stand up or what could a young stand up that maybe doesn't think improv is anything to offer? They could learn with an improv group and take it to when they're on stage by themselves. Great question. So so I said it's kind of like training like an Olympic athlete. Right. So when you're in a class for three hours um, once a week and you have a show one, once a week or whatever, like you have a coach when you're doing improv and you're on a team with eight people and then you have shows with your team. Right. So what I got from that was uh, we're all in this together. We're a team trying to get better. It's like us versus the audience. Now I've done a lot of stand-up shows and it, I feel like if I'm the feature, MC, headliner, like whoever I am in that lineup, we're a team and we're trying to have the best show for, for whatever that 90 minute show is or whatever it's booked for. We're a team trying to destroy the audience. And when I, I developed a, a pathological intolerance to stand-ups who douched younger stand-ups and 
Uh, I just want to say we did a podcast together on Highway Diary, Angelo, and I just said your ethics and your your being like a coach when you're uh, running an open mic is completely invaluable to people getting better at stand-up. Um, so, yeah. I really appreciate that. And I think to some extent, we would be fools to say there's not some element of competition between stand-up comics, right? But I do think at, at the level we're at and most of our listeners are at, or where I am anyway, I believe I agree with you 100%. It's all of us versus the audience, right? And what I would say is that the best sets I've had haven't come on a bill where everybody else bombed. They came on shows where the first guy or girl was great. The second guy or girl was great. I went third and I just kept that vibe going, kept it moving and set the stage for the fourth person to come and crush as well. Right. Um, I think if you just always want to be the funniest person and are selfish about it, well, it's the people before you and the host bomb, your job gets incredibly hard. You know what I mean? Um, but I think what you want to do is make a great show and have everybody do well. And if you're the best out of everybody that crushes, you crush the most. That's awesome. But it's not just realistically, it's not going to be you every night. Right. So you guys be a, a little bit of a team player and bring the audience, make sure they get their money's worth and make sure they want to come back to that show or that event. I think it's a great way to look at it. Next thing I have for you is I know a great deal about the Jersey Shore comedy scene. I know a little bit about New York City's comedy scene, but you've been to the Jersey Shore New Orleans, Los Angeles, and Austin, Texas, um, for a, a decent amount of time in each one. What did you learn? How would you describe each one of those scenes? And you could start with where you started. It's kind of take it chronologically from your start to where we are right now. Yeah. So before I say this, I want to say that what I've learned uh, most importantly is that, especially with this COVID-19 situation, but there's always going to be a situation, whether it's economic or this or that, is that this is this is a big thing. A city is not a stagnant uh, thing. It's not like every time you go to New Orleans or every time you go to Los Angeles, it's a stagnant thing. Each of these cities evolve, and I think that they peak and they valley. You know, uh, in 1985, Mike Tyson was the greatest boxer in the world, literally the best heavyweight boxer in the world. And I feel like uh, Los Angeles, when I was there, so I moved to Los Angeles in 2009. I went to the new school um, and then my girlfriend moved back home and I kind of chased her out there. I lived there from 2009, 2014. And it was a great time to live there. I saw the comedy store under the reins of a tyrannical, egotistical, sociopathic douche called Tommy Morris. And then I saw Adam Egit take it over and completely turn it from a bankrupt shitty club um, from the attitude of the talent manager. The attitude was the only difference. Same club, same address, same everything. Uh, Tommy Morris left. Adam Egan took over. Bar sales through the roof. And all he did was he was fair to the comics. Right? And that's literally... So when I say your attitude either limits the potential of the city you're in or uh, explodes uh, like a renaissance, the potential of the city. I've seen this directly via um, the comedy store on Sunset. Um, so it was a, a, an amazing learning lesson for me that I'll take from the rest of my life. But uh, going back, when I, when I moved to LA in 2009, I thought I would get right in with the Upright Citizens Brigade. 
But I found that I started to get a little disillusioned because I felt that the people that were getting passed at the UCB in, in 2009 in Los Angeles had credits, TV credits. And not only did they want you to perform there for free, like you didn't get paid to be on a, a team, but they only put on the people on stage that had Twitter followers. So I started going, wait a minute. You know what I mean? Uh, I thought I could get in this club because I have New York credentials at this club, but because I wasn't hired on a TV show, you won't let me through the pearly gates. So that's when I said, ah, fuck this. I want to just do stand up. So I started only doing stand up in, you know, 2011, like January 2011 until today. I just only have done stand up and I've never done improv uh, since, well, maybe one or two times when I got whatever. But um, so it, when I started doing stand up in LA um, in 2011, you know, I definitely had to start over, start from scratch. And then uh, I also noticed that if I got it, uh, if I was doing an even an open mic, but there was an audience, like some someone with more Twitter followers than me, another stand up would kind of smell outside the, the the door of the place, hear the laughter, and walk in, and then go, "Oh, I was on suddenly Sue's and it died, he died, he died. This is my IMDb credit." And then I would get bumped all the time in LA, <laughs> even at open mics. Just because, you know, so, oh, they were on a movie in 1991, so they get right through. And I mean, I got bumped by Damon Wayans. I got bumped by, you know, at Flappers. Um, I'm not complaining about it. That is probably fair for that to have happened, but it, it started to happen a lot. Um, right. It's, it's, one, it's one of those mm -hmm. things that we all agree with is less than ideal, but it, it's I don't see a scenario where that doesn't happen. Fair enough. It um, makes sense, and it was kind of fair, you know. Right. But then when what's after LA for you, man? Yeah. When you leave LA, what's your next step? So sure. So then I got fired from a reality show called Nashville Confidential, and the next week it got canceled, and it didn't even air. Right. So I was working on this reality show. They said I I'm going to make thirteen hundred fifty dollars a week for seven months. I said that's fucking great. I work there three weeks. I get fired. The show gets canceled the next day. I'm like, God damn it. This, this city sucks. Like I can't make money. I was broke. I was like desperate. I was going through the list of all my contacts, trying to get another job. And I just couldn't. So I started looking into grad school and I went, I got into the university of New Orleans. They gave me the Patrick Udo foundation scholarship. They gave me the uh, privateer scholarship. Um, and so I said, hell yeah. So I went to New Orleans uh, you know, kind of trying to scam some scholarships into just a, <laughs> like a comedy residency for me. And I literally did stand up five to seven nights a week, except for things like Mardi Gras, where there would not be shows to perform at. Um, but yeah, so then I went there and there I met the most sociopathic person I've ever met in my life. Now, you know, when you get bumped by Damon Waynes in the main room of Flappers, you're like, okay, that's fair. And also, he was nice to me, so I'm not mad at Damon Waynes. You know, I just wanted to say that name out there clearly and just be like, he was nice to everybody. You know, Whitney Cummings also bumped me at, at Flappers. Fair, fair, fair to them. And they were nice to me, so I'm not mad at them. But I met this talentless person called Andrew Polk, and... He was a dick to everybody, but everybody kissed his ass so hard because he ran a uh, he ran a show at Howlin' Wolf and he ran a show at Gasa Gasa. 
And no matter how much he abused the open minders, they still all kissed his ass. He literally, he, he said this, imagine this, Angelo. I have the experience I have. I worked on Shark Tank. I worked on reality shows. I have all this, you know, training from UCB. I, I, well, I sign up his list one of the first times. He goes, um, uh, so, so then he rearranged the list to put his friends all up top and put me at the bottom. He literally said this. Me and Duncan Pace are going to run the show. We're your comedy gods. We're funnier than you. Here's the list. Okay. And then he would read the names off. And I would be like, what in the fuck is going on? So uh, then uh, he made fun of me at the hi-ho. I made fun of him back and he banned me for two years. This bifurcated my relationship with the comedy scene. So everyone who was friends with him told me to go fuck myself. And so then I just, uh, then I made a choice. I go, well, these people are nice to me. Uh, this group called Young Funny, which is all African-American people. And I was like, I just made a choice. I'm like, I'm only doing black shows from now on. Now, there's a few exceptions to that. I'm being a little funny. There's a guy called Garrett, uh, and I would do his shows and stuff. Like, I was friends with uh, 10% of the white people and 100% of the black people. Uh, every, everyone in this little hipster group hated me. And it was just very weird. I felt like I couldn't sit at the cool kid table, but they're all bombing. So then I started going every now and then, you know, in a Venn diagram, I would do a show where a couple of them would be on it. And I started to murder. And then they started going, oh, you're being transphobic. Oh, you're being this kind of phobic because I'm doing legit better than them. And they're insecure and they've already put me outside. But they, I'm getting all this. I don't know. I just when I looked at my weekly chart, right, my weekly schedule of stand up. And I can't go to Hi-Ho on Sunday. I can't go to Bear With Me Open Mic on Monday. I can't go to Bufa's on Wednesday. Um, I can't go on a Thursday to uh, the House of Blues. These places I was legit banned from for this interaction with this sociopath. Um, so I go, okay, well, I can go to the Black Label Ice House on Sunday with Gary. I can go to Siberia on Monday. I can go to Young Funny on Tuesday. So I did every single one I wasn't banned from when I was banned from the other ones. Um, and, uh, you know, that is, I don't know if it was spite or just feeling like I'm on a team. These people are my team. These people are my people. These people give me love. Uh, a group called Young Funny that still operates in New Orleans. This other team is not giving me love. Now they're my enemy and I'm going to practice until I'm better than every one of them could ever be. Okay, um, good, good, man. Ray, real quick, yeah. just so we're coming up on the, the time limit for this. Oh, dear. I have two quick, quick questions for you. Once you left New Orleans, you found your way back to Jersey. Give yeah. me a couple quick thoughts on what's going on at the Jersey Shore right now. Oh, well, you're, I mean, you're the pillar of that. If I was, if I was a comic, uh, right, you know, in New Jersey right now, I, I try to do everything Angela's doing, um, you know, but I mean, there's so many great people down at the shore. You got Vin Brew, you got Brian, Brian St. John, you got Tadpole, you got Richard Dweck, you know. Um, and then once you, when COVID yeah. hits, you make a very bold decision to take your game to Austin, Texas. How's Austin treating you so far? Honestly, I love it. The comics are, I mean, now I am hearing, now, okay, let's be fair. I'm six weeks into moving to Austin, but I will say they, they don't get their haunches up. I have this very offensive joke 
Um, and no, and I'm even like, I don't know if I should do this joke, but it's so offensive and it's so ridiculous and it gets laughs. And as long as you come there on time with jokes and, and you're nice and you shake hands and you're not crazy, um, you know, I think it's fair. It, it just off rip off jump. It's one of the fairest scenes I've ever seen. Um, that sounds great to me, man. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a place we're hearing about more and more. I think it's really cool. You got down there early and are, are doing a great job in your first couple of weeks or months down there. Uh, that being said, to wrap it up, I really appreciate your time, Eric. Uh, give us your social media and where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, the best place to find me is erichollerbach.com, E-R-I-C-H-O-L-L-E-R-B-A-C-H.com. I post uh, all my shows, all my dates are there. Uh, I'm doing a lot of podcasts now. Uh, yeah, check out the Highway Diary podcast. I'm on Twitter, at Eric Collerbach. Uh, you can find me that way. Yeah, erichollerbach.com is the best because it has everything I do. I update that every day. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Best of luck down in Austin. And make sure you stop by the Brighton Bar next time we're at the Jersey Hell Shore. yeah. Thanks, Angelo. And Richard Dweck. Hey. Where yes. are we and what are we about to go do? We're about to go to a strip club. I can't believe it. <laughs> I actually, like, for as many times as we talked about this, I still have that lingering thing in my mind. Like, air is pretty solid. I don't think he'd ever do this to me. But I do have, like, I don't know if it's OCD or whatever from the way I've been treating it. I was like, this could be a prank. I could be, you know, brought somewhere and left somewhere. But uh, Eric's been great. And uh, I I know that I totally had, I had many opportune times to, uh, to stop this from happening. So this is completely consensual from me. I'm completely into it. And uh, I, um, I got ready and everything. So... <laughs> You look good. You shave down. What do you expect to happen inside the strip club? Like, I'm hoping to get at least one dance, and just like I'm, I'm a low key person. People know that. I'm not gonna like draw too much attention to myself. So I'm just hopefully gonna be able to. Uh, this is completely new to me. I've never done it before. So now, I, are you worried about getting an erection? And is that gonna? No, be- that's not. That's not a problem. Well. Maybe I'm not sure. I'm like, I'm like, I'm sure. I don't know. I've never had that issue, but it could happen. <laughs> it's like you never know. But uh, I, uh, I uh, think you know. Yeah. We we got to listen to the bouncers. If you're allowed to during a lap dance, if you're allowed to touch boobies, then touch boobies. If you're not right. allowed to, don't. You know, we just got to listen yeah. to what they say. Yeah. Um, but you've never been to a strip club before, and you're are you no. a vir- You're a virgin, right? Yeah. Completely haven't kissed a girl since high school. It's uh, well, it's really a problem. <laughs> it's uh, but it's uh, it's not that I haven't like had things I've, you know, I uh, once in a while, I'll meet a girl on like a dating site or something or like an app, and then she'll like show me a picture of her boobs or something, and that'll be like fine or real sex or something. But like, it's never been like an actual physical like anything so like it's a weird thing but uh i've gone on a couple dates and passing it's just like even with covid now it's just i think that's the biggest thing that's drawing me back is like 
at least I would be able to do more <laughs> if we didn't have this thing. So you're worried about getting COVID-19 a little bit from a Right, strip? Like, like I would be able to be back into the dating scene because I was doing pretty well. I met this emo girl through the Facebook dating app and I was like, you know, this could work. And then the uh, whole entire COVID stuff happened and she got like, you know, like worried about it. Like she didn't want to like, you know, go out and like interact because I guess she was nervous about it. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so this is completely new to me. I don't know if I'm talking too much. I had a huge cup of coffee today because I was like, I got to charge my phone up. I got to keep my energy up. I got to like... Man, so, come to the stage. I got a feeling he was asking good. several All right, aspiring let's do nurses it. and dental hygienists. It was too late to say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Give it up for Richard Dweck. experiences, mishaps, you go on adventures and bad things happen. For me, it was all smiles. <laughs> For me, it was, you know, probably one of the best nights of my life. And uh, it just was, it was, it was, it was the same way like Comic-Con was for me. Where, no, let me explain, let me explain. Like anyone who hasn't been to Comic-Con, close your eyes and picture Comic-Con. That's it. So if you've never been to a strip club, close your eyes and picture a strip club. That's it. You got it. Everyone has it. So it was great. Uh, we got, um, Eric was the best like wingman ever. Cause like I got four dances. It was three year old was awesome. And, uh, the first one was the best. She was from Belarus, and uh, she was she was fucking great. <laughs> very uh, late 20s, early 30s, very great. Uh, she let me do so much shit. It was insane. Like all the rest of the dances were very short, and like I was like, yeah, this sounds like the right time. This first one was the longest thing, and she let me do. So much. Like, not only did I get to touch her, I got to suck on her tit. It was awesome. <laughs> it was... She put my hand down, and, like, I didn't touch it, but, like, she put it on her vagina, and it was like, oh, this is, like, Narnia almost. It was like, this is, like... <laughs> like Narnia. This is fucking awesome. So, like, I don't have, like, I just have stuff that gets reactions like that. I don't have any funny stuff that really happened. It was just awesome. Like, the thing that was bad for me was, like, my uh, vocabulary went to shit. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, you couldn't have just, if you just put like the word amazing into like a thesaurus online, you would just be, that's all the words that I said. I was like, this is amazing. This is awesome. <laughs> it was like, that's the only thing that I said. And uh, I'll tell you more about the chick. She was very, very hot. Um, like perfect, like, like it was just perfect. She was. Don't be emailing no, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't. I didn't fall in love or anything. I was just like, this is fucking great. But uh, don't she was like, uh, like either a thirty-six or a thirty-eight C cup. Very good. Like it was just like, this is solid. This is solid. I was like, this is good. Like this is. 
curvy in the right places, it's just good. Like, I was just like, this is good. And it's like, you know, it kind of is embarrassing, though, because, like, and it always happens to me. I'm always like, I'm a guy that just gets by. Like, that's just what happens to me. It's like, I was a solid C student my entire life. I passed my acting class because I was the only one who did the physical homework, like, one time. Like, I, I just get by, so it's like, you know, it's like, this was, you know, it's not that I had to pay for this first experience, but it was, you know, it was fucking great, so I got my money's worth. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a thing. So, uh, yeah, it was just funny. My parents were like, you gotta, like, you must have a lot of stuff. And it was like, yeah, no, it's, you know, it was all smiles. So, uh, that's all that I have for that. Uh, it just kind of like, it was, it, I have some, another thing that was good that I was happy about was there wasn't, I didn't get hard, but I didn't, there wasn't any shrinkage, oh, which I was worried man. about. I was worried about some shrinkage, because that could happen around many girls. I, like, it was either gonna, I was afraid that it would either go way down or way too fast. And I was just like, I'm wearing corduroy pants. This is working. So, <laughs> what? What? Get to see the shower? Stuff, stuff like that. Man, I wish I was playing with Barbie. It was... This shower. It was, uh, yeah, it was good. So, uh, it's kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's a crazy thing. So, uh, I, I mean, that's all I have. I just, I didn't write jokes. Like, I felt like I don't have, like, things. These are just experiences. And I actually got really mad today before I left. I got really upset because my friend Timmy, you guys know him. Uh, we've been friends for 20 years. And for years, he's been wanting to, like, ever since we were teenagers, to have sort of, this locker room talk type of stuff that we do. And I don't like it. Like, to me, like, I'm not a prude. It's just, like, sexual stuff is very private to me. You know? Pri private sexual stuff that I do for two hours a day and just, like, that's it. Like, you know, masturbate six times a day and that's it. Like, I don't need to talk to anyone about it. I don't need your, I don't need notes. I don't need cliff notes. I don't need to know what you're doing. I have my shit, but, uh... <laughs> So, I got really mad at him. He's like, we need to get you a blowjob next. I'm like, I'm done talking about this situation with you for five years. So let's not talk about this anymore. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> so, thank you. Right, just rampaging through the strip clubs of New Jersey. All right, I think that's going to be the end of Tales from That Night, unless this guy's got something to say about it. <laughs> Give it up for Mark Henley. Dweck is going to be roast battling Carl Kalen at the Brighton Bar. Oh. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. But uh, uh, Carl, you better be nervous because Dweck now has this I just sucked a uh, stripper's titty confidence going on. And he's going to be bringing the heat. Dweck, tell him you're going to bring the heat. Obviously, obviously, we're all going to talk about this for the rest of the year, oh, maybe yeah. long in 2021. My two, my two biggest pieces of information I'll remember from that were, I was sure he was going with the girl was from Belmar, but I was not expecting <laughs> Belarus. <laughs> also, is it with an eyeball her measurements? 
uh, questionable. And then the fact that he spent two hours a day doing sexual stuff. <laughs> that uh, it just seems like a lot, like a lot of a lot of time. Yeah. Um. All right. So now let's hear. I'm gonna guess another version of the night. Give it up for Eric Hollaback. Now, now for you guys, he closed with the I masturbate six times a day line. That's how the night started for me. He gets in the car, I'm like, so, you know, what do you think about ladies or whatever? He's like, oh, you know. I jerk off about twice in the morning, four times a night to seven times a night. What? Like, he doesn't have a tissue by his bed, he has a fucking barrel. Like, if he had a pile of newspapers, he could make a paper mache gazebo best. He's got a lot of glue. All the glue. Um, I worked all day Friday, and I managed to take out the ATM $120 for 12 hours of work. That was gone in 34 minutes. So, yeah, this lady from Belarus, who yeah. Dweck said was between 20 and 30, was 41 years old. <laughs> but she had big tits, right? So she comes out with these wobbly sloppers, and I'm like, bing, 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 you know what I mean? It's like every anime girl that fucking Dweck jerks off to between 11 and 74 times a day. <laughs> She comes out, I'm like, hey, can you guys give lap dances? She's like, oh, yes, you know. In my country, I give blowjob for bologna sandwich. I was like, okay, you're the girl. You're the girl. I give her 20 bucks, you know. I'm just waiting there. I get some drinks at the bar. I'm hanging out, watching some strip dance. He comes out like all disheveled. His hair's all fucked up. His tie's off immediately. I made him dress like a fucking doctor, man. Like he went in there. He was spiffed up. He looked fucking great, right? The tie's off. There's lipstick all over. He's like walking like this. And I figure I, as soon as I see him, the, the lady come out from Belarus, you know, I gave her another 20. I go, another lap dance, another. She goes, no, give him some time to slow down or to catch his breath. I say, no, get back in there. After a jab, you need a right hook, you know? Like, make this, make this guy fill up a bucket backstage, you know what I'm saying? She takes him back in the back room, and this time I'm out for like 10 minutes or something, you know? So she comes out, she whispers in my ear, I'm talking to another stripper at this point, but she walks over and just whispers in my ear, it was like sitting on a beer can. I'm like, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Dwight got his penis caught in a garbage can one time in the other room. He's got a hammer on me. That the economy's about to crash. I don't know about you guys. I, know, I think that this whole system is fucking rigged. It just seems to me that our money is based on a bunch of bullshit. You know, it's, it used to be redeemable for silver, but now it just says a Federal Reserve note. It's a bunch of bullshit. I think dollars currency should be based on blowjobs. Then it would never lose value. That's a hard asset. You know what I mean? Let me just give you an example, like. Bernie Madoff could not have a Ponzi scheme if a currency is based on blowjobs, you know? You'd be like, that's hilarious. Okay, this account says you owe me 7.8 million blowjobs, Bernie, so get sucking. Put your money where your mouth is, banker. You know what I mean? We gotta keep the bankers honest. 
You can't derivative financial swap these nuts. <laughs> so then as I'm talking to this hotter girl, you know, and I'm like, hey, why don't you, look, he just had dinner, now get dessert. So I gave her money, I sent him back there. He comes out and he's like, I didn't like that girl. I didn't like it. So, and then he got a third girl from Kazakhstan. Well, it was fucking crazy. Uh, I ran out of money. And then people keep on coming up to me and they're like, oh, can I get a tip for my lap dance? I'm like, I'm single, probably because it always works like this. Um, my mom stopped talking to me also because of this. I, my mom doesn't talk to me anymore. Um, but I also dropped a stand-up special where I say that my mom had a heart attack sucking dicks. And that might have something to do with it. <clears throat> but uh, my mom had a heart attack sucking dicks, you know? <laughs> but arteries are exploding in her chest. That's how good my mom sucks dicks. She's a craftswoman. If I got a blowjob from my mom, it wouldn't even be incest. It would just be like being served a fine meal from a master chef, you know? Like, thanks, Ma, for the blowjob. My senses are alert. But it would just be like a craft. Okay. Um, all right. I'll let you all talk about Dwick at the strip club. Uh, smoke pot, worship aliens. I've been Eric Hollibach. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Eric Hollibach. Do the Lord work.